0: Welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. Normally we do an Ask Me Anything at the end of our Sunday service to answer questions you all have about the sermon and other topics, but this past Sunday we had baptisms. So we didn't have an AMA time, and all of those questions are going to instead be answered here in today's podcast by Nick Gibson, our lead pastor, and Nicole Kyle, our music and worship arts director. If you have more AMA questions for Nick, all you have to do is email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org, and we'd love to answer it in a future episode. You can also join us for future AMAs on Sundays at 9 a.m. at highpointchurch.org slash live. Thanks for listening.
1: Hey everyone, this is Nick and Nicole. We are um, both we work on staff at High Point Church. Nick is our lead pastor, I am our worship director. And we're going to go through some questions this past week. We got to hear from Nick about what it looks like for us to be in the season of waiting. What do we do while we're waiting? And um, we had... I'm a- in a
2: short season of waiting right now because I have coronavirus.
1: <laughs> That's true.
2: <laughs> I'm in quarantine.
1: Yes. So we're um, recording from our own homes. There's no risk here. Just maybe a little bit of risk of being stir crazy for you.
2: Yeah. I'm. It's, it's worse for my family. I'm supposed to get out by the end of the week, but they're just getting going. Yeah. Though they have, Lexi's sure they've all had it. She's like, we've all had it. So I don't know. Maybe She's they probably have. right. Yeah. If she says they've all had it, they probably
1: have. Yeah. Whatever. Yes. So um, we've got a handful of questions that are related to the sermon and a couple of extra ones. Let's actually start with those ones, Nick. So I'm going to scroll to the bottom here. Um, all right. The first question says, should Christians read the Apocrypha?
2: So for people who don't know, the yep. Apocrypha is a um, a group of books um, that were written between the time of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament. They cover the intertestamental period. They are, they are You'll find them if you get a Bible in a Roman Catholic church, you'll find them in there. Mm-hmm. There was some controversy over them around the time of Luther because they were highly revered by the church, but they weren't really considered part of sacred scripture. Mm-hmm. And when Luther said that they were absolutely out of the Bible, um... Uh, it, the, some people feel like it was, you know, like a thing that the Roman Catholics were like, well, then it's it you know, like. Yeah. But um, if you go back to the the historic beginning of the church, um, the first list of books of the New Testament canon is the um, the Easter letter from Saint Athanasius, and if you put that together with the established Old Testament of the time, you get the what is considered the Protestant Bible, from hmm. from Genesis to Malachi, and then from Matthew Revelation. Um, the the question of whether or not Christians should read those books, um, the answer is almost none should. And here's why mm-hmm. it's not because they're full of crazy stuff that there's a little bit of crazy stuff in there.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, but it's cause most Christians don't read the Bible. Sure. And so, uh, yeah. so like, no, read the Bible. Mm-hmm. You, you don't read the Bible enough. Read the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if you've read and meditated on the Bible a ton and you have a daily quiet time and you're like working through scripture and like you're, you're getting increasingly familiar with it and And then on the side, you'd like to read through the Apocrypha because you'd find it historically interesting. You want to know some things that happened between the Testaments and you want to read some script, some like some writings that aren't really scripture, you Mm -hmm. know, Um, but they're like important historical writings. Then read them. Fine, It's fine. Yeah. Uh, You won't like some of the things in them. There's some things said about women in there that are not um, really super palatable for right for these days, especially Mm. in the book of Sirach. But first and second, Maccabees talk about the the Jewish revolts in the intertestamental periods and stuff like that. But the important thing to recognize is that the church at no point considered them scripture Mm. on par with the Old and New Testaments. Okay. And so they are part of the writings of the church, broadly speaking, but not the scriptural ones that we believe um, are the Word of God written. Yeah. So I would say for the vast majority of Christians, no, because you need to read the Bible and you don't.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's you know, such a. That's like not. I. Sh- I feel like I shouldn't. Pastor be su- answer. Well, no. What I was going to say is, I feel like I shouldn't be surprised to hear that answer from you, like for that reason. But that just isn't what I was expecting to hear. But that is very helpful.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's I read true. the of course because, like, I'm supposed to be a scriptural scholar and all that, and it is good background historical information yeah. that is somewhat helpful. But, I mean, I, in some ways, jo- reading Josephus' History of the Jews or Wars of the Jews uh-huh. would be you know, similar, like it's, it's like sort of historical background written by people from those times that is generally helpful to get a feel for the times. I do think that one of the things that's cool about reading non scriptural historical religious writings Mm -hmm. is you begin to get a feel for how remarkable the Bible is. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many people who, she's like, you know, if you become a historical scholar and you read all these other, you know, ancient books, you'll see that the Bible is just like all of them. And the only reason it stands out is because, you know, it's the only ancient book you've even read. Yeah. And as somebody who has read a lot right. of ancient scriptures, I find that to not be the case.
3: Uh-huh.
2: I find um, this, the Christian scriptures to like stand out dramatically yeah, from other writings. And it's one of the sort of natural proofs, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. like a circumstantial proof yep. of the divine authorship of scripture is that it. I think it really does stand out yeah. pretty dramatically.
1: Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thanks. Next question. Do you disciple people? And if so, how do you decide who to invest in?
2: Uh, the, the answer. I think this means me. Like, I, yeah, it sounds I think, like it's a question for me, like so. Nick Gibson. Yeah. Um. So I'll answer this from the perspective of very busy leader, um, husband and father of kids who need attention. Like in this kind of a life stage with this kind of a ministry. Yeah. What kind? Of, how do I think through how I make the decisions about who to disciple? And the answer is yes, I do disciple people. Yeah. Um, generally speaking, I I do the. To Timothy 2 gig where I try to entrust to reliable. Now, Now, technically, the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, trust entrust to reliable men. And I think the reason why he says men specifically, I, I think you can make it non-gender specific, but I think he means elders. I think he wanted mm-hmm. Timothy to build elders. Yeah. And I think he did mean men in that case, but I don't think that that means anything in particular specific to gender. I think he said, you should invest in people who will become the sort of reliable people who can invest in others. Yeah. And So I look for the, I look for like the top 10% of that is what I do. Yeah. Um, Oftentimes these are people on our staff team, small group leaders, um, elders, elder candidates, Mm -hmm. um, younger people who are, so one of the the bigger things I do relative to this is I do the cohort thing with people I think could be elders, most of whom are in their twenties right now. Yeah. And we meet for 12 to 18 months going over like how to be an elder. That's training that like only I can, I mean, there's not a lot of people at our church that can do that kind of training. Mm -hmm. So I try to do stuff only I can do. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so, and then other than that, I try to go all the way to the bottom of the barrel besides that. And like, I try to do evangelism, like mm-hmm. with people who don't know Jesus and need a lot of help coming to believe in him.
1: Yeah. Can you answer that question yeah. now? I think that's helpful and good. I think that's what this person is asking. Now, can you go a little more broad and give a little bit of like, I mean, you already did this kind of, but how should mm-hmm. people think about who they themselves should invest in?
2: Um, I I do think there's something to fit in whether or not you can rope people into what you're already doing. So there's, there's a guy in the church that I've spent some time discipling named Andy. And one of the reasons why I've spent time with him is because he came to play basketball with me. Uh I was like, look, I drive to the East side twice a week and I'm in the car for 35 minutes each way. And that's an hour and ten minutes. Mm-hmm. So if you want to spend time with me, there's an opportunity. Your Scott, your husband's like this was like this too, right? Like yeah. Scott was willing to drive basketball because he liked to play basketball, and we spent time in the car together. Yeah. So there's a no, there's a number of guys over the years that are on the west side. They played basketball other places. I invited them to come with me, and they just didn't do it. Yeah. Um. There's other people who are like, hey, I'm going to be out in the garden pulling weeds and like digging stuff up. If you want to come, we can have hour hour and a half to talk. Mm-hmm. And some guys go, that sounds great, and they show up, and other guys don't. Yep. And in some ways that you're like, there's what I would call leisurely discipling, like mm-hmm. the people that aren't like built into my schedule that I try to pull into my leisure. Um, there's some yeah. guys i take taken fishing, you know, they like to fish, I take a fishing. So I would say if you're busy and you got to do a lot of stuff, pulling people into your leisure is one way to do it.
3: Yeah.
2: Um. um other than that, I, yeah, for me, it's strategy. I'm look I'm looking for people who will be productive.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There was a book that I read, I think I was in college when I read this. Um, but we've talked about it on the staff team before, Master Plan of Evangelism. Um, which it's yeah, tied- Robert
2: Coleman was one of my professors at Yeah,
1: Trinity. yeah. And I thought that was such a good book. I mean, it's I think he has also written one called Master Plan of Discipleship, which I have mm-hmm. not read, but I He's thought-
2: only written like forty books. Okay. So
1: <laughs> But I felt oh. like Master Plan of Evangelism was so good for also discipleship thinking through who are the people yeah. I'm going to invest in and who are. To, yeah. So that's a, that's a really good resource. It's a very short book.
2: You know, Coleman is still alive. I bet he'd come on the podcast if we asked him.
1: You should. Cause I think,
2: I think his career's kind of slowed down. He's got to be yeah. in his 80s now.
1: Oh, that and, would be um, so great.
2: But well, like, he can give this talk about like, uh, well, so there's a story. So they call him, his name is Clem Coleman with the people who know him call him. His wife, Marietta Coleman taught my wife how to yard sale.
3: Oh, well, like, I, yes. She, she, I, dro- she drove yeah. around
2: Chicago and taught her how to dicker with people and uh-huh. like find deals whatever. And um, there was one time apparently where Dad. Coleman went and, and Master Plan of Evangelism was three talks. He would go places sure. and he'd give three talks to like large groups of people, right? And there was one point they went somewhere. I don't know if he was jet lagged. I think he was jet lagged and had the flu. Oh, no. And he gave like the first talk and he sat down and he's like got a 10 minute break before he gets up there again. And he's like, Henry, I, Marietta, I can't, I can't, I don't think I can do it. And she said, she said, you just sit right there. And so she just walked up on stage and, and gave, gave the, talk the talk word for word. Because she'd heard it t- yeah, 300 that's, times. That's awesome. She had it totally memorized, yeah. right? So she just got up there. And she just gave the talk. Yeah, that's so like, awesome. Like it's hard, you know? Like Right, yeah. <laughs> and then I think he got up and did the Q&A uh-huh. after she was done. That's and so She's awesome. like, I'm just going to tell you his talk. And then he'll come up. He's going to take a little rest right now. Okay, uh-huh. just give him a break. Anyway, That's yeah, he's a great so guy, great. and but he, but listen, he he practically preached that guy every year mm. at seminary. He would select twelve disciples. Really?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's awesome. And he
2: and he had like these like fourteen little booklets,
3: uh huh,
2: um, taken from some like historical Christian, like like there was one from John Wesley on holiness, and yeah. one from like Ian Bounds on prayer, and like and so you'd read those and you'd talk, and he like would disciple you for like I think it was about eight or nine months.
1: Yeah,
2: and it was like invitation only, right? Yeah. And then there were a couple people he's investing in more than others, you right? know, kind of like this. Anyway, I mean, which is what yeah, he talks
1: about in the book. Yeah. It's yeah. So, and the, and so yeah, in the so book is like,
2: there's the 70 disciples. There's the large group of people. You just kind of yeah. are touching some, there's like the 12 that you focus on more. And then there's a three mm-hmm. that you really pour into. And then there's the one, Yeah, you know, and it doesn't, it doesn't literally have to be those ratios, but I think this idea of like, you've got a crowd,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you've got
2: a crew, mm-hmm. right. And you've got a couple. Yep, I mean, I just, I just made that up with the C word. Yeah. I'm sure there's another way to do. You've it. You've been
1: but. writing sermons long enough that the, um, the alliteration yeah. just flows out of you. you
2: get a crowd, a crew, and a couple. You know? So, yeah. Yeah. So, but, but I think that's really true. I, I don't, I don't really have a couple right now. Yeah. And I think my crew is, is mostly the staff team.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, but I'm kind of getting to the point now where I feel like it's more. I'm, I'm functioning a little bit more like the Apostle Paul than like Jesus. Like. I've got people in different places. Yep. I'm moving around like di- like different ways and stuff, and it's it's a little bit weirder, you know.
1: Yeah. Um, all right, let's get into some of these questions about the sermon. Um, before that, I just am very curious. Are you drinking in a cup of milk right now?
2: Uh, it's a mixture of it's a mixture of milk and uh, eggnog because it's Christmas. time. Oh,
1: okay. It's for those who are listening. It's 8:30 p.m. when we're recording this, and it just looks like Nick's drinking just a cup of milk right now. Get yeah, ready for bed. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost bedtime for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's um let's dive in. Okay. So in your sermon, there are there was um, a section of the sermon where you talked about. So this was again, what do we do while we're waiting? And you had two main points. One is we don't do what is supposed to be God's to do, yeah. and then the second is. Okay, then Then, what do we do? We steward what is ours to do. And so you had this whole list of some of those things that we could do. There were six, I think, mm-hmm. in that list. These first questions that I'm going to ask are related to that list. So um, just to yeah. give a little bit of the context. Okay. So this person said, one of the things you said to do is that we should exert patience. And this person writes, how do you exert patience when you struggle being patient?
2: Yeah, I mean there's a lot of questions that sound like really good questions and, but they, but there's, as uh, I think Samwise Gamgee said in Lord of the Rings, there's nothing for it. Like, it's kind of like this question that it seems like it wants an answer, but it really just wants the world to be different. Sure. You know what I mean? And so sometimes we have questions like that. It's just like, well, what do you do when it's hard? Yeah. Well, that's the same thing you do when it's easy. It's just harder. Sure. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of like you know, how do you become a good athlete? Well, you practice. Well, what do you do when like you really don't want to practice?
1: Well, you practice.
2: You you practice. Yeah. You know? Like I, I and I see this, I mean I see this with my teenagers, you know, a lot where they're just kind of like yeah they do the right thing when it's easy, and then they have to struggle when it's hard. And yeah. I'm like, uh, you know, like it, it it's not different; it's just harder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's funny that the question is how do you exert patience when you struggle? And the and the and the question the answer is by exertion. Yeah. <laughs> that is the answer. Like you, you have to like. It. It takes a lot more energy. Yeah. A lot more concentration. A lot more will. It, it takes more out of you.
3: Yeah.
2: And you have to exert yourself. Um. But the, the good news is is that patience is also a virtue. Uh-huh. And the, the word virtue is built from the Latin vir, which means strength. Right. Uh-huh. So as you as you exert yourself to build the virtue, you become stronger, and in the same lift, it doesn't take as much exertion. Uh-huh. So, you know, like at the end of coronavirus, I won't have worked out for like a week and a half. Uh-huh. I'll go back to my chin up bar. And instead of being able to do nine, I'll be able to do three again.
3: Uh-huh.
2: I mean, that's just where I'll be. Cause I'll have lost that muscle mass. And i I mean, I'm 43 now. I just lose it quicker. Yeah. And so the first day I'll do three and I'll struggle. And that afternoon I'll be able to do five. Yeah. And by the end of the week, I'll be able to do nine again.
3: Yeah.
2: Now getting from nine to 10 is really tough for me. I need to probably lose some weight. Um <laughs> but like, you know, I just gotta build the strength. And so the right. the first few times I do it, my heart's going to be pounding. I'm going to feel like I'm going to die.
3: Yeah. My whole body's
2: going to be like, we can't do this. Um on number 3. And by Friday, on number 3, I'll be like, ah, it's just 3. Yeah. Yeah. So 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 see the, the reason I say is if this is the promise of godliness. Yeah. The promise of godliness is um, when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, you know, training in godliness is worth something in this life and in the life to come. It's it's valuable in everything. And one of its values is, is that it takes less and less exertion to do what was hard. Mm-hmm. What's hard becomes easier, morally speaking, because you become stronger. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like when it's hard to be patient, exert yourself. Yeah. And then and the exertions get easier
1: mm-hmm.
2: if you keep doing it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So. I think that's really helpful because I I think sometimes we forget that it takes this effort. And we're and also we're just so accustomed to making life feel easy for ourselves. I mean, so much oh, of yeah. life in the modern age where we live right now is about ease and about convenience. And so then when we, f- when we put ourselves in a position where we have to exert energy in any way, whether it's like you're saying, physical or relational energy, choosing not to say something, I feel like that was one of the areas where I started to see this the most f- at first cool. in my adult life was like, oh, I shouldn't just say everything I wanna say. And Mm -hmm. the energy it took to shut my mouth and not say it was so much. And it felt like, I felt like I had to try. Yeah. But I had to learn how to use temperance and how to, to use energy to not say the thing. And it got easier over time, but we're just, we have, we have made everything easy in our culture for, in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And it's, so it's, yeah it's hard yeah and the, fa- the fact
2: that like you know we understand the neurology of it more now doesn't change anything yeah. i mean <laughs> the fact that like psychologists are like well you know you got pathways you got these pathways yeah who cares what the i mean who cares if that's the literal and like building strength or something is the metaphor the fact is you got to stop the thing that's happening yeah through exertion and do something else right like if Fine, your neurons re-pathway, like whatever, but the, like you still have to do it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I and like you do it in
2: your consciousness.
1: Yeah. I do like you understanding know? it, but you're right that it doesn't make it any easier to actually do it. No, it's just, it just doesn't know. make what you do any different. <laughs> yeah.
2: Like yeah. It, like it's basically, basically the, the neurologist say, well, you know, if you do it like 19 days in a row, you know, like it'll be, it'll be easier. And the answer is, yeah, we already knew that. Yeah. Like if you do something more, it'll be easier. And it's really not that long, you know, like I'm glad you can like turn it into math. But like, yeah, because the ancients said it took 21 days instead of like 19, like that's a huge paradigm shift. Like it's not. like You you have to exert yourself to become who you want to be. Mm-hmm. And, and when you don't, when you're not doing that, not only are you not strengthening yourself, but you're falling back into what the Bible calls the flesh mm-hmm. or the immediate sensation of your neurology rooted in. Your moral selfishness and denial of God, right? Mm-hmm. That's the flesh. And that that's what happens. And you just please yourself
3: mm-hmm.
2: in any way you want.
1: Yeah. And
2: you're moving one way or the other all the time, every second. Yeah. And the fact that your neurology follows us, I mean, that should be no surprise for an embodied soul.
1: Yeah. Did you spill your eggnog?
2: Everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. About two thirds of it. Okay. On my pants and on my desk.
1: Oh, no. you know? <sighs> okay.
2: All right, we should go to the next question. Yes. Might not as much fun for the listeners.
1: No, but it's very funny though. Okay, so the next part of the, um, so at the very end of this list of six things that we can do, you talked about mm-hmm. how we can dare to be creative, um, that, we, mm-hmm. er, that we have to be daringly creative. So these next questions are about that. So this first one, this first person writes, isn't our acting in creativeness a way of not waiting upon God's will? It, um and then they write, are we rationalizing or justifying versus being creative?
2: Yeah, so this is this is a person who is cleverly using my sermon against me. Uh-huh. So, so I argued earlier in the sermon that when you wait and you want to grasp, like like the Bible calls that wickedness. But that's not how it presents itself to you mentally. The way it presents itself in your own mind is through a rationalization of some kind, right? Your mind makes an argument and says, it's fine, right? Now, rationalizations or the way we lie to ourselves to tell us that wickedness is okay are very oftentimes fairly creative. And so the flesh utilizes human creativity to make rationalizations so that we can engage in wickedness and grasp for what we want so we don't have to wait for God. That's Mm -hmm. true. And, in some ways, it's using the same mental faculties as if we were using our creativity for good. right? Now, what I was arguing in the sermon is, if you give yourself to grasping that that like choosing wickedness, grabbing for what's not yours,
1: mm-hmm.
2: right? Your creativity will be used in towards wickedness, creative ways to be wicked, to grasp what isn't yours. and, creative ways to rationalize in your own mind, how you're being a good person and how this isn't a sin. It's not really wickedness. It's fine for you to do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. When you reject that and you say, I'm not going to do anything. God says I can't do. Right. Um, But I wonder if there is more that can be done through resourcefulness. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Right. When you shut off, not doing, not doing what God says you can't do you're shutting off a certain kind of rationalization and a certain kind of creativity for grasping. And you're turning your creativity to what it's supposed to be used for, which is figuring out how to be a good steward in the situation you're in. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you're, what you're trying to do is you're because, because creativity is like empathy. It's not a virtue. It's a faculty. Mm -hmm. Right now, both empathy and creativity are faculties that, that can be virtuous in the sense that you can build their capacity. Like, you know, you can build your creativity by doing certain things, by adding certain things onto it, but it's essentially a faculty. The question is, are you using it in the right direction?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And what I'm encouraging people to do in waiting on the Lord is if you understand what grasping is and you reject it wholesale, the wickedness of grasping,
3: Yeah,
2: and you also reject being stuck, right? waiting around for God and doing nothing in a place where he never promised he'd do anything. Mm-hmm. And it points you back to God. The question when you get pointed back to God is, What's my, what am I, what's my job and what's his, Mm
3: -hmm.
2: right? The stuff that's my job, what's the most creative way I can get it done? Yeah. And if it's his job, then what can I do while I'm waiting? Yeah. After I've explicitly asked him to help me, Mm -hmm. you know, what do I do? Right. And, and so what what we're trying to do is we're trying to get our creativity working for God rather than our creativity working for the flesh. Yeah yeah and that comes that comes through a spiritual and moral exertion to get these faculties that God has given us that the flesh is damaged that sin is damaged and they tend to want to serve the flesh. We need to get them to serve the new law of the spirit
3: mm-hmm.
2: through the regenerate heart, through the exertion of faith.
3: yeah you know yeah
2: and, and that's what I mean that's what discipleship is. that's what godliness is. It's It's exercising faith and learning to walk in the spirit, towards your human being mm-hmm. which includes all these faculties that god has given you by making you in his image which includes empathy the capacity to feel what others feel and have a moral emotion but also creativity your ability to see dream up new things and and to create things that didn't already exist mm-hmm. these are all faculties that god created us to use in his service right yeah. to bear the image of god well right that's what we're trying to do
1: yeah uh, this the next question kind of. Is a similar in in its theme of basically trying to discern how, what you should do while you're daring creatively. So I'll go to that one next. The person says, in exploring the idea of daring creatively, I would imagine that it's crucial to be discerning things like listening to the Holy Spirit. Would wise counsel be helpful? And I would think that the outcome of being creative doesn't tell you whether or not it was successful. It could be that the process of going through it is what God wanted. And lots of what God asks, our journey, so to speak, is not easy or successful in the eyes of the world. Could you speak to this a little? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let me ask you three or four really complicated, (laughs) profound questions, and then just say a few things. Yeah, so I would say the answer is yes about discernment. If um I want to encourage, you know, listeners who haven't I, I wrote a book called Substance, and in the second chapter in particular, I talk about the minute you say goodbye to worldliness, which of course is grasping or like not following God in this area, immediately what's necessary is wisdom for discernment. So the answer is discernment is necessary always. There's there's hardly any part of the Christian life you'll ever be a part of. In which discernment won't be an enormously important um, faculty. Mm-hmm. Now, listening to the Holy Spirit can can be a portion of that, but I think it's important to recognize that there is. I don't really know anywhere in the Bible that tells you that you should listen to a message from the Spirit like it's a sentence, like a direct statement, mm-hmm. and do it. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm not saying like I think that's what a word of knowledge is referred to in 1st Corinthians 12. But that's not something everybody experiences. That's mm. a gift that some people have and some people don't. Same thing with prophetic words. That's a message through the spirit, right? It's it's truly through the spirit and it's a message. That's great. But it it doesn't come to everyone the same way. It comes mm-hmm. through people who have a particular gift. So um so yeah, listening to the spirit, whatever that means. I mean, there's we, there's other podcasts we've done on that. Yeah. What what it means to listen to the Lord. But yeah, I mean, wise counsel. Uh, um I have like a a picture that we hand out sometimes in counseling at high point of, um, like how to discern God's will, and it's got like eight faculty things in it, right? It's like, like what's in your heart to do, when your heart is right with God. Mm-hmm. What do other people say? What do you have real opportunity to do? What does the Bible forbid or say is very valuable, right? Yeah, um, it's like a bunch of those things, and and you you think you think through as many of those as you can. And, and, and usually wisdom will arise from that. What I call that process of discernment is reading the providences. Like mm-hmm. I l- I'm looking at what's going on. I'm looking at what God has put in my heart and I'm also looking at what God s- has said. Yeah. And I'm looking at what other people have done and what their judgment is, their discernment is. And I'm putting all that together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: It's always a stew. It's never a,
3: yeah.
2: it's never a steak. You know what I mean? It's always a bunch of stuff together.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So yeah, I think, so yes, discernment. Yes, wise counsel is helpful. I think the other thing this is getting to is that you won't always know if what you did was, quote, right, the right thing. Yeah. Because um, sometimes I think you'll do something that's really godly and terrible things will happen. Right. And I just, I don't think you can, I don't, I don't think you, There. I don't think you get quick feedback like that. I think that's why God's word is so clear on so many things, because if you went through your life discerning God's will based on what happened, like, you would be... In, in big, so let me give you like a weird, innate example of this. Mm-hmm. So, last weekend, I did this tree job where I cut down like nine trees mm-hmm. in two days.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: And it's something I do on the side. I really enjoy it. I make a little bit of money, but it's mostly fun. I do it with people. My family does it together. My girls work with me. We have lots of firewood from it, right? It's just, it's like a thing I do. It's yeah. a hobby that doesn't cost us money. It just makes us a little, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So, I get kind of done with this whole project, which was a huge hassle, but it, we made a decent amount of money and it was a great family work day. Yeah. You know, it a couple of family work days. And the, uh, the chipper that I had rented from a friend disappeared.
3: Yeah. yeah.
2: Right. And there's part of me that occurred to me. I was like, God, is, is this you telling me you just don't want me doing this crap?
3: Uh-huh.
2: Like, is it like when things like that happen, it's like, it's harder than it should be. Yeah. I mean, should I take from that? That like, you don't, you still want me doing this? Cause that would have like to replace a chipper would have been like half or more of the money I'd made in the job. Uh, and it would have just like, kind of wiped out my gains, you right, know? Yeah. And I was like, maybe God doesn't want me to do this. Maybe I'm doing this for the love of money rather than just enjoyment. And maybe this is, should be fitting in my life right now. Mm-hmm. You know? And I thought about maybe that was true. And I thought, yeah, I don't know. Right. And then like two hours later, I found the chipper. You found like, some it. Took it. Yeah. He thought it was free. And just took it. I put it on Facebook. I saw your Facebook
3: post. Yeah. And one of our close
2: friends, like it was literally by his house. He was like, crap, it's right there in the driveway. That guy's driveway. So I like found it like a couple hours later. Right. Well, does that mean God wants me doing it? That's not, that's not a sign. Like, yeah. I mean, I don't think God's using it as a sign. It's just like, but like when things happen and they affect you emotionally really hard, people tend to intuit, well, that's God. Right. When really it's throwing your emotions for a loop. Yeah, you know, and like it's easy for you because when things happen like that, you we want to imbue them with meaning,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? But the problem is, the event doesn't interpret itself. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was just stupid and shouldn't have left it on the curb, right? You know, yeah. So I th- I think that's true spiritually too. That like when we're discerning and we're trying to like listen to the voice of the spirit and so on. um, I think people get really sideways, and they and you get really emotionally involved, and then and then you get confused by stuff that you want to happen. Mm-hmm. So, like I've met guys who want certain girls to marry them, and so then you know they got hear God's voice that God's telling them that this girl's going to marry them. Yeah. You
3: know, uh-huh.
2: and like I mean, well, this this may offend some folks, but um, there are some Christians right now that are like very amped up that God told them that Donald Trump won the election. And so like right now they're doing all kinds of like marching on Washington and calling it a Jericho march. And they're like, you know, we're going to, God's with us and we're going to, you know, we're going to get the right outcome of this election, which is the Donald Trump one. And, you know, like as a Christian, I'm kind of like, all right, that's all cool and everything. If God said, let's do that. But like, I also think God might be able to help us find some real good physical evidence of voter fraud right. on the scale necessary to overturn some of the key States. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, I, I mean this all along with this thing, I've just been kind of like, well, we'll see, mm-hmm. right? Like these people are going to go to court. All these people say that they've got tons of evidence, right?
3: Mm-hmm. Well,
2: that's great because we'll see all the evidence and then we'll know. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but now we've got some Christians, like some that I really respect, like Eric Metaxas, um, mm-hmm. was, was uh, and so he's like leading this thing and like Eric Metaxas wrote, you know the, yeah. this award-winning book on Bonhoeffer, right? And like he's a really smart guy, like an Ivy League dude, and he, it just feels like he kind of lost his way. On the, I mean, it's what it looks like to me right now, at least. Yeah. And um, and I think it's because they feel like they're hearing from God, and like God is leading this, and like it's got to be right, and they're they think they're reading the providences, and then they like they've bought into certain assumptions, which is leading in a certain direction. It doesn't feel like they're able to be like, ah. They're, I don't feel like they're able to clearly discern. Right. Right. Because obviously if you like the president, I the idea that he, the election was stolen from him is like emotional catnip.
3: hmm
2: And that, that can present itself so much like feeling an internal impression yeah. that you might feel was like from God. And so I, I'm always careful to tell Christians that the discernment process should be listening to God or reading the signs. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you should be prudently behaving in relationship to the written word of God and wisdom, mm-hmm. and including the circumstantial stuff that you think you're reading in God's providence. But you, I mean, you can always read the providence as wrong. Yeah. Always.
1: There, um, yeah. There's a, a quick story that I just remembered. When Scott and I found out we were pregnant with Luca, we had also previously to that been in the process of adoption But then we were pregnant, but then we got presented with this child, like a a birth mom who, um, like we were offered this as you could be like, have your pregnancy and adopt this baby. And we had like no idea what we were supposed to do. And we came to talk with you and Alexi and ask you, like, what do you think we should do? Like, is this God saying here, have both of these babies? Like it felt very much, there were a couple of things that made it feel like this very, like God is moving thing. And there were just a couple of questions that you guys asked us. There so was like, "Oh, never mind." <laughs> like, no. One of them being, "Do you have all the money right now to pay for this adoption?" Because we had been planning on raising money for it. And we're like, mm-hmm. "Uh, no, we don't." <laughs> like, well, maybe that would be part of the providence that God would have. You would have had it already, maybe. <laughs> and yeah. they, I mean, there were a couple other things like that. But I just think that it is so easy. Especially when you said like, when they become these really emotional decisions, it's really easy to see meaning in everything Mm -hmm. and you can get, you can lose your way.
2: Yeah. And sometimes it's partisanship. Sometimes it's, but, and sometimes it's like straightforward spiritual ambition. Like you're like, why would you think, how would, why would God want to do less? Yeah. Right. Because God's like wants to bring redemption. So like, if you have a chance to have a baby and care for one. Yeah. Why wouldn't he want to do the more rather than the less, right? Because yeah. the more is better, right? It's uh-huh. more good. It's happening. So, like, that's probably what he wants. And the answer yeah. is that's also the way to, to like drive yourself mad. Oh, and yeah. he never, and God never says that. And right. like, that, there's no in the Bible's like, if you can do more, you should.
3: Yeah.
2: Like, there's actually a principle that's the opposite of that in the Bible called the Sabbath. Like, right. no, like, you should work and then you should rest. Yeah. And yeah. God isn't a slave driver.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I think about like sometimes I think about that very scenario. That would have been really, really challenging. I mean, when we had our yeah. son, we we were in a tough way, physically, emotionally. I mean, it was like a hard transition for us. And I think it's really yeah. hard sometimes. That that principle you just said. I mean, yeah, like I I find myself falling into that all the time. Well, of course I should do more for God. Of course He would provide more yeah. in these things rather than oh maybe He wants us to experience rest and joy in the season with just one baby and not two mm-hmm. but anyway yeah, yeah. And,
2: and honestly i think for most christians one of the things you have to deal with is like who knows yeah like i mean if you would have done both like so i mean we would have like done our best and like yeah you would have done your best and maybe that would have been fine and like or maybe god has some really interesting providence this way maybe he wanted the adopted kid to have an older brother rather yeah. than a Look at equal. I mean, who? I yeah. don't know what's going on. All you I, can do. You, I don't think you can look back and be like, "Well, we did God's will."
3: Mm-hmm. No, you mm-hmm. but you
2: did God's will in the sense that you obeyed God's revealed will.
3: Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: that's it. You did. Yep. You did. Uh, you did a good yeah. that was before you to do. Did you do God's like special, perfect, predetermined will? Well, I mean if you're a good Calvinist, you are. Yes. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. he, he, saw, totally. he decreed that it would be that way. And that's what it is. Yeah. Um, but like from our perspective, can we know that? And the answer is of course. Right. not. Right.
1: Right. Yes.
0: You'll know. You'll yeah. Know not.
1: I, I think I have found that living in the hypotheticals and honestly, it's the time where I feel like I learned this the most was in like seasons of waiting. Where living in okay. the hypotheticals just is going to make you go crazy. Like you, you, mm-hmm. we don't know. What would have or could have happened in hypothetical situations. What we know is what's in front of us. And, and then do, I mean, your sermon, like doing the things that we know are ours to do right here in right. this moment.
2: Right. There's plenty for you to do. Yep.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've heard me say this a hundred times that like God's will is that we do his revealed will, that which he's spoken yeah. and shown and not try to do what's in his secret will because that's why it's called a secret will. It's secret and you don't know it and it's not your job to do it. And Satan's temptation is to get us to ignore and rationalize God's revealed will and focus us on his secret will. So we keep begging God to tell us his secret will while we're not doing his revealed will, Mm -hmm. which is the perfect demonic temptation Yeah, because you're trying to be God Mm -hmm. and not being a human. Yep. Yeah, And I, I always have to tell people, listen, just you let God do his secret will mm-hmm. and you do his revealed will and it's going to, it'll come together beautifully,
1: mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, okay. Let's look to these next couple questions. There are just two left. So um, this, this first one is someone is writing a statement and I think they want you to comment on it. I think that's what this means. But then I also realized maybe they're just quoting you from the sermon. I don't really know. So I'll just read it. They say.
2: Yeah. yeah that's a quote for me.
1: Okay. Well, then maybe they're just thanking you for this quote, which is no intelligence in the universe understood the creative power exerted in the coming of Christ.
2: Yeah. I mean, if, if either the wicked men and women who crucified Jesus, the devils that inspired them to do it, knew what they were doing, they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And it says in first Peter, I think it's in first Peter, um, about the things of like redemption, that the angels longed to look into them that like what God was doing in redemption, though he he told angels what to do, they didn't know the end goal. they, they didn't know what they didn't know the scheme apparently uh-huh. um, the only person who apparently knew the scheme was God right in the persons of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. but not angels, not demons, not humans. Right, we no no eyes saw or ear conce- ear heard or mind conceived.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, literally, angels and demons, like all minds, all consciousness conceive what God prepared for those who wait for him or those who love him. And so to recognize that, what that means is, is that God's actions were incredibly creative.
3: Mm.
2: For it to be so obvious in retrospect, yeah, and yet completely undiscernible. Moving forward, yeah, and yet discernible enough that people could believe and yet not predict. Um, God is claiming a profound amount of creativity, and then to realize that you bear his image, yeah. like you and I bear the image of God, and part of that is a, the creative capacity.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we, we are way more creative than we think we are. Yeah. The reason we're not very creative is because we live in the flesh. We don't exert ourselves to build virtues. We don't grow in godliness. We use our creativity to rationalize and to grasp towards wickedness rather than to see. One of the things I think is helpful is one of the things that makes people creative is limitations.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. You yes. know what I mean? Scott, so my husband was an art major, and he had a professor where at, I think it was weekly, their, um, their assignment was all based on limitation. It was either like you can't do a straight line in this one or you have to do it in 10 minutes or you can only use a fork Mm -hmm. or like just, and it forced you to be creative because of the limitations you had.
2: Right. And so when you're limited, you can't do wickedness. You can't do rationalization. You can't do nothing. Right. It's kind of like the parable of the talents. Here's a bunch of money invest it. Uh Right. So the only thing you can't do is nothing. Right. And so, but, but we're all, we're limited by our opportunities, by our capacities and so on. Right. So, um, so if if like, if there was no such thing as wickedness and we could be as ruthless as we wanted, you know, we'd get a lot of things done really ruthlessly and uncreatively, Mm -hmm. but the moral limitations and the structural limitations and the spatial limitations and the temporal limitations and all these other limitations we suffer under are also things that force us into radical levels of creativity. And it's a really cool thing.
3: Mm -hmm. And so
2: if, if you, if you put away sin, and you put away your creativity from rationalizing, and you say, "What is God? What kind of things does God want to do? And what is in my hand? And what can I do?" Yeah. It you'll it'll really spur your creativity. Yeah. You know.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's go to the final question. This person is uh, they say Mark six five says that Jesus seems to say that he could not do any miracles, and seems to say that his power was limited by the people's lack of faith in this situation. The idea that a god's power is proportional to a believer's fervor seems pagan. Could you clarify what is happening in this passage?
2: Yes, well, I I mean, I can try. yeah. So one of the ways we we tend to read scripture is canonically that is we read it in relationship to other scriptures. Um at least within the book itself, right? And so if you read the book of Mark itself, then you wouldn't get the you wouldn't get that idea. Hmm. Right? So there's something um I don't know, you might say it's a little odd in that passage. Um and I, I'm always a little careful with that one cuz people have tried to extrapolate that to basically mean that like um, praying in faith is how much faith you have is the most important thing
3: mm-hmm. as
2: to whether or not anything happens. Yeah, right? So let me, let me make um, one distinction first. Um, oh, sorry, I had the wrong gospel here. So one distinction is the pagan view that a God has as much power as he is worshipped or fed right? Yeah. And that's that's that is a pagan idea, right? Um, that um, it's a, it's kind of like the movie Elf, right? Uh-huh. The, like yeah. the claws meter. Uh-huh. Like that um, he's got as much power as people believe in Christmas, have Christmas in their hearts yeah. and like express it. And that there were pagan ideas that the gods were like that. That the the gods would pass away when people stopped believing in them. Uh-huh. Right? Um, the most um Literalistic reading of this would still would be that. Um, what this seems to mean is is that um, God's miraculous work is is um, contingent or conditional on the human beings believing in Him. That is, He that is He unites it with faith. That, mm-hmm. like, you have to believe in God for God to do a miracle for you,
3: mm-hmm.
2: because the purpose of the miracle is to confirm faith,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? And so. In that sense, miracles in Jesus' ministry, at least in early Mark, are interesting because they're meant to confirm and build faith,
3: Right. but
2: they can only happen in the presence of faith. Mm-hmm. So there's a certain amount of faith that's kind of like, so remember the passage in Hebrews that says, um, for without faith, it's impossible to please God. Anybody who um, anybody who wants to please God has to, one, believe He exists, and then He earnestly um what is it? He earnestly something those who seek him. But anyway, he wants you to, to earnestly seek him, right? Mm-hmm. And that's like what you might call prevenient faith, or the faith that comes before real faith.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. That, that's what the, that's what like John Wesley people called it. They they actually called it preventing grace, but prevent in that in Old English meant comes before. Mm-hmm. So preventing or prevenient grace means the grace that comes before faith. Yeah. And so the idea was is that there there was a certain kind of prevenient faith. There was a certain amount of faith that you have to have in order for something to happen so that you would really believe. Mm.
3: Mm-hmm. And so
2: what Mark six seems to be teaching is is that Jesus taught these people and did certain actions to stir up their faith. And they didn't they didn't even preliminarily believe.
3: Yeah. Sure.
2: Um they were against him. They were their minds were set against belief. And in that context, God was not interested in like pouring out miraculous power. Like the father didn't unleash uh-huh. that power in that context because it wasn't appropriate because of their lack of faith.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. And as somebody who has seen people who have experienced miracles go terribly awry. Right. Because it w- they didn't continue to combine it with faith. I know and have seen the dist- how miracles can end up being really spiritually destructive for people, even though God gives them in completely free and loving ways, mm-hmm. but people like they're free of their pain and they, they just walk away from them because yeah. life's good.
3: Right. Right. You know?
2: So anyway, I, I, yeah, I, I think I, there's a difference between Jesus in his, in his role as Messiah, having certain limitations, including miraculous limitations. Um, In terms of like it says in John's gospel, that he's doing the will of the father and there's certain things he can't and won't do. Relative to certain other things. And in this case, it appears as though there's a certain kind of preliminary faith that is necessary for us to exert or to have Mm
3: -hmm.
2: in order for him to do certain acts.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Because miracles only produce good when they come into a a certain kind of context in the human mind. And if the human mind is set to misinterpret them because of unbelief,
3: Mm -hmm.
2: God doesn't give them.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Does that make sense? And so in a situation like that, Jesus could be in a situation where he he couldn't really heal very many people. Mm. Now, it's funny because it says, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, but he was amazed because of their lack of faith. Mm. Right? So it says he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on just a few sick people and heal them. So it's funny because he did heal some people. Yeah. <laughs> some mm-hmm. people got miraculously healed. Yeah. But but just a few. Right. Right. And so, um, it seems to say that there's power in Jesus to heal. There's plenty of it,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, but there that there is a there is a context in which God does miracles, and there's a context in which He refrains from it. Mm-hmm. And I actually, fr- frankly, think that that's a real thing. I think it, it operates in the church today and in America today.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, there, it is kind of funny that there. I have not yet been in an in Indian church in which there were numerous stories of miracles.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: At least some of which seemed really credible. Yeah. Um, and very few American churches, and right. I, I think it partly is a context of belief, not just. And it may have to do with sophistication, um, that it, we have a certain kind of um, technological sophistication, and so we've added a false sophistication of disbelieving in God, sure. and in the in spiritual realities. I, I'm not. I don't, I don't plan to be able to diagnose it. Yeah, but I think I, I don't think though that the logic here is pagan,
3: mm-hmm.
2: that the gods have as much power as the believers believe in them. Yeah. Yeah, if that if that were true, then Jesus would have a equal amount of miraculous power everywhere in as Naz- in Israel because the same number of people were believing in him,
3: mm-hmm.
2: right? And he and he becomes he's incredibly potent in the, his ability to do miracles early in his ministry, so it doesn't build over time as pe- more people believe in him. There's just no relationship like that in the scriptures mm-hmm. to Jesus miracles, yeah. and this is sort of a, si- a strange situation. And so you, you you instead of saying, "Oh, look, that looks like pagan logic," if you compare it to the Druids or something, you know, like other pagan myths from England. What you do is you compare it to the rest of Mark. Why is Jesus omnipotent everywhere else in Mark?
3: Yeah.
2: He doesn't even lift a finger. Yeah. To do miracles. And yet the very town he grew up in Uh where people know him the best. Yeah. There is the least faith.
1: Yeah.
2: Why is that? See, that's what Mark is getting at. That's the spiritual lesson he's trying to teach us.
1: Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that. All right. That is everything. Those are all the questions that we have. So thanks everyone for listening. Thank you everyone who um, sent in these questions and thanks Nick for taking the time.
2: Yep. My pleasure guys. All right. See you next time.
1: Bye. Bye.
0: listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.